View family, welcome home. The View is a place of real and imperfect people coming together to worship the real and perfect God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and our mission is to make His name known in the city of Memphis. No matter what you've been through, no matter where you've come from, you belong here. Here at The View, we are training up believers to be bold enough to use their voice for the gospel. Since Christ died for the sins of the world, since He gave up His life for us, we're called to give up our lives for Him. In other words, it's not about me anymore. This semester, we're going to talk about love, a word that's thrown around so casually. But what does true, sacrificial love look like? How do we live in it, and how do we show it to others? We need to look to the one who sacrificed his life for us. This is real love. Tonight, the title of our message. This is, in fact, the final one of real love. We are landing the plane. All good things come to an end. We are finishing the Real Love Sermon Series. This is the eighth week of real love. We've tackled a lot of topics. From the very beginning, we talked about what will you be known by, Fernando. After that, we talked about it's not a request, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about prayer. We talked about truth. We walked through Psalm 51 for three weeks and looked at some of the key components of David's prayer of repentance. And tonight, we end with this very simple idea. The title is, A Love to Die For. Last week was a love that lasts. Tonight we're going to talk about a love to die for. The only place I could imagine finishing this series is the book of John. Now, college students, I understand the season of life that you're in. I'm still technically a college student. I want to talk with you tonight. I want to have a conversation. I don't want to hoop and holler. I want to have a conversation with you. Everything, I say that, and then the first thing I do is yell. I want to have a conversation with you. Everything, everything in our lives is begging for our life. Everything. I need you to understand that from the beginning. You live, you and I live in a generation that is surrounded constantly by social media, technology, people. We're around more people than ever before. We have cars, we have phones, we have internet. We are surrounded by so many things. And you have in your life a dozen and a half things begging for your life. You have your college career that is begging for you to devote everything you have to it. You have friends in your life and family in your life that's begging for you to devote everything you have to it. Passions, hobbies, good things and bad things. You have sin in this world that is begging, Matthew, for all of you. Sin does not just want part of you. When temptation comes, it wants all of you. Don't be confused. When temptation arises, it'll look like it's satisfied with half of you, but really it's trying to get all of you. Everything in our lives is begging for our full devotion. It wants everything to us. The business world is so competitive that you have to kill or you won't survive. Jasmine Duguid studied law when she was in college for her undergrad. Ask her about the world of law. Law is cutthroat. The only way to make it up the ladder is to kill the one in front of you. We live in a day and age that is, is begging for you to compete and to compare and to outdo one another and to fully 100% devote everything you have to it, even good things like ministry. There are pastors who fall out of ministry because they fall in love with ministry and fall out of love with Jesus. There's believers who fall out of love with Jesus because they fell in love with ministry a little too much. Everything is begging for all of you, all of you. 
And what do we do? We compare our lives, we compare our progress, we compare our accomplishments. There are, I wrote this down in my notes, there are college students who have devoted their entire life, it's heavy, I promise you, but it's true. There are college students who have devoted their entire life simply to proving to other people that they have value. That's their only goal. That's why they study what they study. That's why they work where they work. That's why some of us come here is because we are just simply trying to prove ourselves to other people that we have value. They would literally die to convince someone that they have value. Isn't that sad? And that's the day and age that we live in. And I wrote this down as well. It won't be on the screen. I just want you to think about it before we jump into our text. In a time of our lives in college where we're all pursuing something to live for, the better question might be to pursue something that's worth dying for. Maybe in our pursuits to find something worth living for, we're asking the wrong questions. All of us love sports, and we love athletes, and we love being athletic and all these things, but at the end of the day, we're not going to die for a sport. Sometimes you may think you would, but you would not give up your life for basketball. As much as I love basketball, I would not give up my life for it, which means basketball is not worth 100% of my devotion. It's not worth my soul if I wouldn't die for it. But the great thing about the gospel is that Jesus Christ is worth dying for, and if Jesus Christ is worth dying for, he's certainly worth living for. Isn't that amazing? It's so simple, but it's so true. Uh, once you have found what is worth dying for, you have found what is truly worth living for. And tonight I want to show you the only thing worth dying for is Jesus Christ himself, his glory. The sermon in the sentence tonight, this will be on the screen, and then we're jumping straight into it, is this. When the gospel becomes to you something worth dying for, you are ready to live for it. If I could sum up tonight in one sentence, it's that right there. You want to talk about real love? Why we did this sermon series. When we are willing to die for Jesus because of his real love shown for us, there are things in this world that will not scare us anymore. When you get to a place to realize how, magnif how magnificent, how holy, how precious Jesus Christ is and that he is worth all of your life and that he would be worth it even in death, there are worries and concerns and fears that will fade away. See, we don't need to focus our eyes on our problems to overcome our problems. We focus our eyes on the solution, and he overcomes our problems. <laughs> That's incredible. Goodness. Let's look with me here at John chapter 15. Now, this is right after the vine and the branches. We're not diving into that. We're going to dive more into the verses that follow after it. But I want to look at starting in verse 9. There's a few things I want to point out here tonight. John chapter 15, verse 9. We know that John is a theological heavy gospel. Matthew is a kingdom gospel. It's all about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Well, this gospel is all about the theology of Jesus. It opens with Jesus is the word. The word was with us. The word dwelt among us. It starts off from the very beginning telling you what it, the gospel of John is about. In fact, he even says, John says the purpose of this gospel in John chapter 20. What verses? I don't have it in my notes. Uh, verse 30 and 31, it won't be on the screen, but it says at the very end of the book, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Isn't that amazing? Think about that for a minute. He literally just said, Jesus did a whole lot of other miracles that aren't even recorded in this book because it would take eternity to write them. How much we love reading about the feeding of the 5,000. You know, Jesus did a whole lot of other things that we don't even know about. <laughs> That's insane. Just pause for a minute and think about how insane that is. Then he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that there wouldn't be any doubt about his identity, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. So once you understand his identity, then you understand your purpose. 
Once you know that Jesus is truly the Son of God, you'll realize that if the Son of God is commissioning you to do anything and you have his authority, there is nothing through his power that you cannot accomplish if it's for his kingdom. That's incredible. But where we find ourselves in John 15 tonight is Christ-like love. Look with me at verse 9. Jesus says, coming off of the vine and the branches, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Just focus on that for one moment. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus has imparted the love from the Father to humanity. Remain in my love. If you, verse 10, keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. In other words, what I'm commanding you to do, I've already done. (laughs) Jesus, I'm not going to command you to do something I didn't do. So when I tell you to die to your flesh, Jesus died on a cross because of our flesh. (laughs) That's insane. Let's keep going. I, I can't get too caught up here. We'll be up here all night. Verse 11, I've told you these things. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. How many of you, show of hands, honestly, want to live a life of joy? Anybody in the room tonight? Anybody at all? You know what? We all claim to want joy. But why do we settle for living such a stressed, unjoyful life? Joy is something we all claim we want, but we don't really do a whole lot to accomplish or achieve it or access it. We know where the source of joy comes from, but we keep going to resources. We know the one and the only one who can give us joy, but we continue to run to other people for it, and they can't do it. Verse 12, Jesus continues. He says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Then Jesus, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible Half of it's encouraging, half of it's challenging, all of it's encouraging. But look at this. He says, you are my friends if (laughs) you do what I command you. Verse 15, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. No, no, no. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father. God, we thank you so much for the ability to worship your name. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy. And, Lord, we thank you for this room. God, we know that there are Christians all around the world being killed for their faith. And we are able to gather and worship you. And, Lord, we just praise you for that. Father, right now we ask that you would speak to us, that it would be your words and not mine. Who cares what I have to say, Lord? We want to hear from you. Please have every word tonight and save someone tonight, Lord. There is somebody, maybe many people who stumbled in those doors tonight. And the reason why they're here, they may not know it, but the reason why they're here is to have a life-changing encounter with you, not based on just emotions, not based on uh, some person convincing them to do it because it sounded good at the time, but, Lord, there are people here who have not known their creator, who have not repented of their sins, who don't know you and don't know their purpose. Father, reveal yourself to them tonight. God, save someone tonight, please. Lord, we love you so much. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. If you're taking notes, I would love for you to write this down. Number one, a love worth your time. The first thing I want to talk about is number one, a love worth your time. Now, let's focus on this you are my friends part for a moment. Because the disciples were probably shook. (laughs) 
You have to understand the context. This is, uh, when Jesus says this, this is a groundbreaking moment in their relationship with Jesus. When he says, you are my friends, they were probably shocked because in the Bible, only Abraham is called God's friend. So this is a big deal in the relationship of Jesus and his disciples. This is a big shift. Now, I want you to understand the context of being a servant. Uh, When he says, I do not call you servants anymore, this is really important. At this time in Jesus' day, a slave or a servant could be useful, could be a trusted tool, but they can never be thought of. Watch this. This is an incredible word. A slave or a servant could never be thought of as a partner. Could never be thought of as a partner. They would be useful, but a friend could be a partner to the master in a way that a slave or servant never could. So Jesus is not saying that they aren't slaves, that they aren't servants anymore. James, in the very first verse, says he is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying, and this is so cool, he's saying, hey, in addition to you being a servant to me, in addition to your role, what I am doing is I am elevating you. I am raising you up to be a friend so that you, disciples, us today, get to partner. Think about that word partner with Jesus Christ in the ministry that he is doing in this world. If I close the Bible and stop right there, we've already said enough. It's not catchy, it's not fun, it's not on the screen, but the fact that Jesus has invited us to be friends and to partner with him means that we should have an honor and a reverence for what he has done for us. To call us up to join in him with the ministry that he's doing, college students, who are we? You realize that this is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that all things were made through Jesus, for Jesus, for his glory, and how he's choosing to use it, how the Father's choosing to use it, how the Spirit of God is trying to use it, is by inviting you and me into joining him in the ministry that he is doing in this world. That's humbling for my ears to hear because I know how much of a sinner I am. I know how lowly I am. I know how undeserving I am to be a part of what God's doing. Do you? Do you know? Because some of us walk around like like God owes us something. Some of us walk around like if we weren't working for the kingdom, the kingdom would be missing out. God's mission would go on with or without you and me. But in his mercy, he has stepped down and said, hey, I want you to be a part of what I am doing. No longer do I call you a servant. I call you a friend because you get to partner with me in the ministry that I am doing. Sadly, many of us would rather partner with the world than we would Jesus Christ. Many of us would rather partner with Drake. We'd rather be on tour with Drake than walking with Jesus. Many of us would rather be coaching and making millions of dollars than walking with Jesus. Many of us would rather be TikTok influencers than walking with Jesus. Many of us would rather be loved and praised and recognized by the world instead of walking and serving Jesus. Many of us can't be friends to Jesus because we're too busy being friends to the world. (laughs) We minister to the world. We eat with tax collectors. But... Jesus has said, I want you to partner with me in the ministry I'm doing. That means when you eat with those tax collectors, when you are out in the world, you love them, you pray for them, you encourage them with a purpose. Because your purpose is coming from heaven, and that purpose is to partner with me in the ministry that I'm doing. Isn't that incredible? Tony Evans once said, I think I said it at Catalyst, he said that ships belong in the water. We all know that. You look at a cruise ship, it belongs in the water. But water doesn't belong in the ship. It goes down. See, you and me as believers, we belong in the world. It's that the world doesn't belong in us. Because then we go down. 
I could close it right now and be done. Of course, I'm not going to. <laughs> Y'all are like, oh, that'd be too easy, man. We go to cookout super early. <laughs> I'm like, come on, professor. No, I'm just kidding. I ain't going to be like that. I'm going to be on time tonight. We get to partner with Jesus, man. That's incredible. <laughs> How catchy you want me to say it? <laughs> we literally, the Messiah, is inviting you to join him. What are you waiting for? Ellie just said it a moment ago on stage. She said, I never thought God could use somebody like me. And now, look, God's using her in ways she could never imagine. Maybe if you would get over some of those fears and worries and realize that Jesus overcame those fears and worries a long time ago, you would start experiencing how God could truly use you. Isn't that insane? What are we waiting for? I've got to keep moving. Now, John 5, 22 to 23 says this. The Father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may, underline this word in your Bible, well, you're not looking at John 5. Whenever you do turn to John 5, or you read it next, or if you're turning there now, we'd love for you to underline the word honor. It's just one of the biggest parts of this verse. Honor the Son, so that all people may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. We would rather, and I'm not trying to jump you tonight, I'm just telling you the reality of it. i got to talk to you in a real way. We would rather spend our time honoring the world so the world will praise us instead of honoring Jesus who's worthy of praise. Hear me. When we want to honor the world, it's because we want the world to praise us. When we honor Jesus, it's because we realize he's worthy of the praise. I've not thought about that over the last seven days at all. The Lord. That verse continues on to say, Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Why is Jesus saying this? Because many people were claiming, many Pharisees and religious leaders were claiming to be doing the will of God and yet rejecting Jesus. Hmm? Hmm? Hold up. You're doing the will of God, but you have missed the Messiah before your eyes. Isn't that how many of us are today? You say, Daniel, this is heavy. No, it's not. It's reality. A lot of us claim to be doing the will of God, but we miss the Spirit of God moving right in front of us. Shouldn't we, if we really do have the Spirit of God living in our bodies, if the Spirit of God really is moving at this place, shouldn't a first-time guest walk in and experience something along these lines of real love? Man, how in the world? I hear you, John. That's what I'm talking about, baby. John up here. Amen. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. John, for real, if the Spirit of God is involved in this place, that when a first-time guest walks in this room, shouldn't they experience something supernatural? And if the Spirit of God is living in us and believers, when, believe, when other people are around us who aren't believers, shouldn't they sense something a little different? Just something? Some kind of hope, some kind of joy, some kind of reverence for someone out there who's also living in here? I don't know. You tell me. But when you're looking at the word friend, the, Gre the, Hebrew, the Greek word here is philoi. P-H-I-L-O-I, which means, and watch this, here's the translation of it. It's people who are on intimate terms. When he says friend here, he is saying that the disciples are people to him that are on intimate terms with Jesus. In other words, they had spent a lot of time together. You don't have to go to seminary to figure that out. <laughs> 
You don't need a theologian to break that down to you. He's saying they're friends because they have quite simply spent a lot of time together. Up until this point, they have traveled together, prayed together, done ministry together. We believe laughed together. God has a sense of humor. I believe they laughed with Jesus. They've seen Lazarus raised from the dead together. They've seen miracles happen together. Quite simply, the disciples are on intimate terms with Jesus Christ. Watch this. How do you know that you're living as a friend to Jesus? Ask yourself this question. Have I spent time with Jesus to the point where we are on intimate terms? If somebody came to you that you didn't know and claimed to be your friend, Grace, but you didn't know them, you might be a little taken back. I'm not saying you'd be rude to them, but actually if somebody was claiming to be your friend, but they hadn't done friend things with you, you'd say, hold up. You are claiming to be a friend to me, but you have not put in the time to establish a friendship. We are not on intimate terms like that. You'd probably look at them with an eyebrow raise. <laughs> I wonder how God looks at us when we claim to be friends with him, when oftentimes we have not put in what necessary friends do for a friendship. I wonder if God raises his eyebrow. <laughs> his eyebrow, can you imagine? We claim to be friends with Jesus. Here's the theological question for you. Have we spent the necessary time with Jesus to be on intimate terms? See, your friends, the people you do life with, you probably talk to them every day. You probably encourage them. They probably encourage you. It's a two-way street. You have a bond there. There's an intimacy there. There's a relationship there that can endure trials. Is that how it's reflected in Jesus Christ? Do you have that with Jesus? And you know what? There's some of you in the room tonight who have never thought about it this way before. If I can be real honest with you, there's some of you who don't know Jesus personally, and that's okay. I didn't get saved until I was 21 years old. I was in college. I was late. But there's some of you in the room who have had a whole lot of religion, but you've never really thought about the relationship aspect of it, that it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Because I got to tell you, when I got saved, Zach, good to see you. I know you're back from soccer. When I got saved... My life radically changed, and it wasn't because I became religious. <laughs> you can look at me and tell I'm not very religious. I don't do all the things right of how you should operate and all these kind of things. I, I don't do these legalistic things that some of the Pharisees were dying for. I, I don't like that kind of stuff. I didn't become more religious. What changed my life was realizing that there is a being named God who made himself known through Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ died for my sins so that he can have a personal relationship with me. And I began talking to him. I began walking with him. I began hearing from him. Through the word of God, he would speak to me daily. The more I read the word each day, I realized, huh, I'm not just reading a historical book. There's something supernatural here at play. Because you open up a history book and you start reading, it don't just speak to you where you are in your life. It doesn't convict you. It doesn't tell you where you're supposed to be going. You open up the Bible, it does. <laughs> Don't believe me? Try it. <laughs> next time you find yourself in a trial, next time you feel like you want to run to the world or run to people to find your solution, find a Bible reading plan, open the Word and start reading it, and you'll be amazed at how God will supernaturally, through His Word, speak to your soul. The more I did that over the years, I started realizing there is something real to this. This is supernatural. And my life was changed from the inside out. There's some of you here tonight, that's what you're missing. You don't need to go buy a suit. You don't need to cover up your tattoos. <laughs> yeah, praise God. <laughs> was that Dakota? <laughs> yeah, praise God. He had a lot of work to do. <laughs> Covering up them shoulders. Biggest round of my head. 
You don't need to go get more religion. You need to realize that Jesus is literally he died to have a personal relationship with you. Isn't that cool? A lot of us don't like that because we struggle with vulnerability. We never learn how to be vulnerable with our parents, so how can we be invulnerable with an invisible creator so we struggle? It's amazing. Even if you didn't have vulnerability with your parents, God will teach you what it looks like. Even if you never had intimate moments with your parents, God will teach you what it's like to have intimacy with him. He'll break you. He'll make you cry. He'll convict you. And then every single time he tears you down, his spirit is right there to build you back up. And your foundation is not what it was, the world. Your new foundation is his word. You need that tonight. I don't know your story. I don't know where you came from. I'm not going to bait you into it. This ain't no click and pull. No, you need Jesus. And if you want a relationship, we'll be standing right over here afterwards and would love to talk to you. There's nothing stopping you. You don't even have to talk to us if you don't want to. You can pray out in the car. We had somebody get saved in their car. Repented of their sins. Believed in Jesus. Called out on his name. Really believed and really repented for the first time. And that's where their journey began. I don't know where you are, but it's time to stop running. I ran for a long time. I ran for 21 years. I ran for a long time. I ran to money. I ran to girls. I ran to all these things you could run to success. I ran to all these things. And every single time I did, I was empty. Ran to marijuana. Ran to the temptations of the world. And they never fulfilled me. I met a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi named Jesus Christ. Changed my life from the ground up. I need to keep going. Off track. Are you on intimate terms with Jesus Christ? I said something stupid to my wife one time. One time. (laughs) This happened a few times. It was a busy week. We had been doing a lot of ministry around people. Every night, you know, view life groups, just around people all the time. And uh, we had not been around each other, just us two. So that, that week we didn't have a date night, you know. You got to have date nights even when you're married, right? I'm 27. Date nights are important. I'm learning that. And uh, at the end of the week, it was so sweet. I've been busy the whole time. She looked at me, her eyes, which are beautiful, <laughs> And she said, uh, Daniel, I miss you. It blessed my soul. My, my heart started crying. And then uh, my heart started crying. Did I just say that? <laughs> oh, man, there's somebody that's not going to come back because of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. And then she said, I'm ready for us to spend some time together. And I snapped back like an idiot. And this is what I said to her. I said, baby. We've been together all week. (laughs) 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 Is that your final answer? (laughs) Mistake. See, I thought that uh, because we had been together with people all week that that counted. Uh, uh, Jacob's laughing. He's married. He gets it. (laughs) Burge is somewhere in here. (laughs) He gets it. (laughs) And uh, I wrote this down in my notes. This is what I learned. Just because you're present with someone does not mean you're pursuing that someone. Yeah, this is marriage counseling tonight. <laughs> and then I wrote down, just because God is present to you, which he is, doesn't mean you're actually pursuing him either. 
See, I can be present with my wife and yet not pursue her. For a second, I believed the lie that doing ministry with my wife could suffice for intimacy with my wife. And there's a lot of believers whose actions, not their words, but their action would, actions would say this. Doing ministry for Christ suffices for my intimacy with Christ. As long as I'm busy doing stuff with and for him, then that's okay for me not to sit at his feet. Now listen, when God impresses on your heart to stop and slow down and sit at his feet, we say to God what I, say to, what I said to Hannah. God, we've been doing this stuff together all week. What you mean slow down and stop? And God's saying stop and just be with me. I wrote this down. Stop allowing busyness for God to be a substitute for being with God. Believers have got to get to a point where we stop allowing busyness for God to be a substitute for being with God. I hated going to birthday parties when I was a kid. I didn't enjoy them for the most part. I was a quiet, shy kid, so I didn't have a lot of fun. When you're loud and obnoxious, you have a lot of fun at birthday parties. But for me, I was a quiet, shy kid wearing a Yu-Gi-Oh shirt. Some of y'all know what Yu-Gi-Oh is? Okay, all right, we got a good community here. We'll play afterwards. Um, I was a quiet, shy kid, and uh, I would go to birthday parties, and whenever they would, you know, bring the food out and bring the cake out, Elijah, everybody start going crazy, and the, the louder kids were all excited or whatever, and uh, by the time little old Daniel got to the table, there was nothing good left. <laughs> I'd get up to the table, I'm on my bar- birthday parties, and the wings would be gone. Wings go first. Wings always go first. The cake, somebody scraped the icing off <laughs> on the last piece. There's always that one kid that scrapes your icing off of your cake and leaves you the bread portion. I don't know where that kid is nowadays. <laughs> Probably in jail. <laughs> like, I can remember at certain birthday parties walking up to the table and seeing it picked bare, like some savages had come through, and I got to choose whatever was left at the table. <laughs> I can remember certain birthday parties, this sounds silly, walking up to the table, seeing what barely was left, and having my choice at these birthday parties. It's silly, but for a moment, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine, watch this, I want you to imagine your life and your schedule as a table. Imagine your life and your schedule as a table. All of the food and desserts that you have laid on that table represents this, your time, your values, and your priorities. This table's before you. You have your time laid out. You have your responsibilities laid out. You have your priorities laid out. Here's the question I want to ask you. Who has first access to your table? Who gets to come first and pick from your time, your priorities, and your values? Because I believe a lot of us, when it comes to God, he is the last one that we allow to come to our table. Or he is third, or he is fourth, or he is fifth, and he will not accept that. What we do is we have our table of our life laid out. And we get first dibs, friends and family get first dibs, everybody else gets first dibs, and God comes up and God gets leftovers. Not one party did I ever walk away as the shy kid feeling valued, choosing from the leftovers. And you know what? How are we showing God we value his relationship if all we give him in our schedule and our time is leftovers? Show me your schedule, I'll show you what you value. Show me your priorities, I'll show you what has power over you. I wrote this down. Whoever has first access to your time is the one who has first access to your heart. That's a question only you can answer. Whoever has the first access to your Apple Watch, whoever whoever gets on your schedule the quickest has the first access to get into your heart. Is it the Lord 
God. Doesn't mean we sit in a closet and pray 24-7. It means that every single thing we do in our day-to-day lives is centered on glorifying his name. He drives the purpose forward. Look with me at verse 14. Jesus says very clearly, and I love this. He is a friend to us, but he says this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Very clearly, not only is it's a, a, not only is it a love that's worth your time, but number two, it's a love worth obeying. It is a love that's worth your time, and it is a love worth obeying. Now, Jesus, I love this, <coughs> excuse me, pointed out that they were friends, but there was a condition. And this is so important, Alina, this isn't popular, but it's Scripture. He pointed out their friends, but there is a condition to this friendship. People don't like this. We want friendship with Jesus, but we want to be able to do whatever we want at the same time. It doesn't work like that, Cheyenne. It doesn't, we don't operate like that. Jesus says to be a friend to him. The condition is you do what he says. Now, salvation is a free gift. You don't lose your salvation when you struggle, when you fall, Bree. You don't lose your salvation. But friendship, fellowship, Walking with Jesus Christ, knowing him daily, you have to understand something. He says there's a condition to enjoying his friendship, and that's simply this, that you obey. That means that when he gives you a command, your yes is on the table and your no is removed from the table. That means that when God tells you to do something, there's no A, B, C, D, there's simply A, yes, (laughs) There's no debating, there's no delay, there's no partial obedience. There is a just 100% yes. God, if you tell me to do this, I do it. No questions asked. I go forward and I do what you tell me to do. I obey. And James 1, 23 to 25, even more so, clarifies this for us. Very popular. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, look at, what, look at this illustration here. What's that person like? There's a lot of people in the church that are like this. There's a lot, I'm like this a lot of times. A hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. And then verse 24, for he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. I know y'all know what a mirror is. We all stare in them 24-7. When we don't have a mirror present, we pull out our phone and, and reverse the camera. I know you know what a mirror is. I see my big old head on this projector. <laughs> uh, we look at ourselves all the time. We know how we look. <laughs> the question is, do we know how Jesus looks so that we can reflect that? <laughs> he says that a hearer of the word and not a doer is like someone who looks at his own face and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Immediately walks away. Forgets. And then verse 25, he says, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person quite simply will be blessed in what he does. Not only that, but just a few chapters before this, John 8, verse 51, Jesus clarifies this even more. He says in John 8, 51, Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never say, he will never see death. That means, salsa. That you continue to enjoy the friendship of of Jesus when you obey the lordship of Jesus. 
When you obey the lordship of Jesus, you get the benefit and the blessing of the friendship of Jesus too. But a lot of times as believers, we simply want friendship before lordship. But Jesus is Lord before he is friend. Lordship comes before friendship. But when we sin, when we choose to do that thing that we know we're convicted of and we're tired of it and we're sick of it and we have shame over it, we have guilt over it, we're ready to break free of it, when we continue to sin, it hurts our fellowship with God. It hurts. When you feel like Jesus is not a friend to you, when you feel like you don't know him, it's largely because there's a gap. There's a sin. There's a breakdown in your fellowship. does not mean you are not saved. It means you are missing it in a certain area of your life, and he is calling you out of that area of life. I love Dakota Tucker. Me and him are celebrating 10 years of friendship this fall, which is incredible. I met him as a, uh, yeah, amen, thank you, John. It's like an anniversary or something. We, uh, like, yeah, you know, amen, 10 years, that's big. Um, I met him when he was in the eighth grade. And uh, now he works with me doing ministry, and it's such a blessing to be able to see his life change. Many of you know Dakota's testimony. He was lost for a long time, didn't become more religious. You can look at him and tell that. He didn't become more religious. He fell in love with a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it changed his life. Um, I knew him before he got the braces off. (laughs) Some of y'all ain't never seen braces, Dakota. It's funny. I almost put a picture up there tonight, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to spare him of that. Dakota, I love working with him because sometimes he works with his AirPods in. And nowadays, man, AirPods are on the come up. AirPods have noise cancellation now. Did y'all know that? Y'all ahead of me. I didn't, know they, I didn't know they could do noise cancellation with something that small. I'm like, that's incredible. That's unreal. We are really making progress here. <laughs> that's where we need to go. Noise canceling. Thank you. Noise canceling little earbuds, Trey. Amen. He works with these earbuds sometimes in his ears. And I walk into the office, and I need to ask him something. Actually, I need to get him to do something for me. I say, Dakota, and he keeps on working. He's got these air, AirPods in. He doesn't hear me. I say, Dakota, still doesn't hear me. He's got this music blasting. It's worship music, I hope. And he's blasting, <laughs> blasting this stuff. And I walk up to him, and I touch his shoulder, and he has to take these AirPods out before he can hear me. And, and for a season, a long time ago, when we first started working, it would bug me, but I just realized what those AirPods were. Those AirPods were simply a wedge. Those AirPods, watch, as small as they were, God bless you, as small as those AirPods were, they were simply a wedge between our communication and our fellowship. So I could talk to Dakota. We were present with each other, but as I was talking to him, he could not hear me because of this wedge that had been driven, even though it was so, so small. And you see exactly where I'm going with this. Sin seems like it's very, very small, Eva, but it will drive a wedge between your ability to fellowship and communicate with God. Sin is like noise cancellation. When you disobey, it begins to cancel out the voice of God in your life, but it enhances the voices of the world. It doesn't get quieter, but you hear all these voices of the world when you're walking in disobedience, but you cannot hear the voice of God because you have chosen to mute it. What happens is when you repent, when you get rid of that sin, when you start saying yes to God, It's like AirPods coming out of your ears. You begin to then, Bree, hear the voice of God. Then when you read the word, you start receiving the instruction that you were meant to get out of it. But until you're willing to move the wedge that you have in your fellowship with Jesus, he's going to talk to you, but you're not going to hear him the same way I was talking to Dakota, but he couldn't hear me. Take disobedience out. Begin to obey. Begin to say yes to God, and I promise you will begin to hear his voice in ways you never thought you could hear it before. There's somebody here tonight who's tired, tired of living a life where they don't feel 
that scripture is true. You feel like all this is a lie. You feel like Jesus is not a friend to me. I read the Bible, I get nothing out of it. I pray, I get nothing out of it. I'm telling you, evaluate your life and you will find a wedge. You will find an air pond. You will find something in your life that is contrary to scripture, that if you would repent and remove it, your fellowship and your friendship is restored. It's an, it's an incredible, incredible thing. You look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, man, went through some stuff. Nehemiah, when he was in Susa, Persia, and started feeling the impression to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, you know that Susa, Persia, was 981 miles away from Jerusalem, a journey, a trek. And Nehemiah begins to sense that impression on his heart to go back and rebuild the walls. Don't miss this. Nehemiah was in a great worldly position. Nehemiah was the right hand to the king. Nehemiah was in a great position, and yet God called him out of that position to go to a city with no walls. Sometimes God may call, call you to leave a great worldly situation so that you can be in a godly situation. <laughs> we think that God will call us to something when the situation we're in just breaks down and we have no hope. No, sometimes God calls you when you're in a pit, but sometimes God's calling you from the palace. <laughs> He tells Nehemiah, he puts it on Nehemiah's heart to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as Nehemiah, you remember in chapter 1 and 2, when Nehemiah begins to receive that call, what's the first thing Nehemiah did? Oh, I remember he went and posted it on Instagram on his story and put a little poll up so people could vote on it. <laughs> right? He went right on there, should I go or should I not go? <laughs> and, and Instagram accounts just started filtering in and saying, yes, no, I don't know, maybe, delay, 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 delay. Oh, yeah, that's right. He went and announced it with a megaphone to the whole church. Hey! <laughs> I think God's telling me to do this. Should I? And took a vote. <laughs> no, for months, Nehemiah prayed. Can you imagine? That's foreign to some of us. When God starts doing something in our life, the very first immediate thing we do is, oh, we got to run and tell somebody. We got to run and get somebody else's view on it, somebody else's opinion on it. No, take time, pray, get God's view on it. And once you have God's view on it, then you'll be able to filter through other people's view. <laughs> He goes to God, he's broken over this, and then he realizes that God's calling him to Jerusalem. And what does Nehemiah do? He says, yes, God, I will go. And when Nehemiah went, there was opposition to the work that he was doing. There was people who weren't believing in it. There was people who were persecuting him and attacking him for doing the work that God had called him to do. Let me tell you something. When you say yes to God, there's going to be people that oppose you. When you say yes to God, there's going to be people that don't like that. There's going to be people that told you you should have said maybe. There's going to be people that tell you you should have said no. When you say yes to God, not everybody in your life is going to be on board with it. Be ready for that. The question is, does their opinion or God's opinion matter most to you? Whose opinion are you chasing? Whose opinion do you want? We put so much stock into Instagram. Some of us, I was talking to a college student a couple weeks ago, post something on their story just hoping that one person sees it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine putting something out in the world for 400, 500, 800, 1,000 people just hoping that one person sees it and they said slides up on it? Can you imagine being so consumed with something so tiny and pointless? How many gospel opportunities we're missing? And yet that's where millennials and Generation Z is. We're so consumed with direct messages. That's the reason why we don't hear from God at all. We're consumed with this culture and you were made to change the culture, not be changed by the culture. When this generation, when we, you, me, I'm still young, <laughs> barely. When we rise up to what God's calling us to do, just like Jerusalem, he rebuilt cities that were broken. And I believe that's where we are heading with the city of Memphis. Can you imagine? Let's just pause for a minute. 
how I'm on time. Doing really good tonight. Can you imagine if God were to turn Memphis upside down for the gospel? What the country would say? What the country would think? Memphis would never be a city that you think God would do a huge work in. Nobody would ever vote Memphis if you put it up there. We're known for crime. We're known for all these negative things. Can you imagine if it was a city of Memphis that brought a, a slither of hope to this nation at such a time as this over the next 10 years? Can you imagine? I believe. Do you? <laughs> I believe in the power of God. I believe that this place, this city is marked right now for such a time as this. And as a partner, Jesus is inviting us, Jackson, to be a part of that work. That's incredible. I've got to keep going. I wrote this down. Each step of obedience is a step in God's will. Each step of disobedience is a step away from God's will. We all in college want to know what's God's will for my life. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Here's what God's saying. Take a step. Stop focusing on the mile and take one step. Say yes. And when you say yes to God, you're walking in his will. You will know his will. But each step of disobedience is a step away from his will. And then in verse 13, Jesus says, of John chapter 15, he says, No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Number three, the final thing is a love worth dying for. Not only is it a love worth your time, not only is it a love worth obeying, but to put it quite simply, it's a love worth dying for. This is our final thing of real love. This is our final point. This is where we end this thing. The day, and I want you to log in with me, please. I only have a few more things to say. But this might be the most important. The day before Jesus' death, Jesus was on trial. Jesus was tried for crimes that he did not commit. Now I want you to imagine the scene. Bring the Bible to life. Imagine the scene. Pilate, we know, was the legal representative of the Roman government on Judea. He held this position for 10 years. And as Pilate questioned Jesus, Jesus stood there. Imagine it with an outer garment that was covered with sweat and blood. He's standing there covered with sweat and blood, bruised up. His face is all bruised from being hit by the priest. Jesus probably still had spit in his beard from people spitting on him. And he's standing there being tried for crimes he didn't commit. Ancient sources, this is fascinating, confirm that a Roman governor could set a prisoner free each Passover at the request of the people as a demonstration of mercy. So Pilate, if you remember, what he does is he offers a choice. He offers a choice, Matthew, between Jesus and Barabbas. I've always said Barabbas, but I think you pronounce it actually Barabbas. But I've always said Barabbas for all my life. He gives a choice to the people, Jesus and Barabbas. Now, Barabbas in the Gospels. Watch this. Here's how he's described in the Gospels. Mark describes him as a rebel and a murderer. John describes him as a robber. Matthew describes him as a notorious prisoner. So here's the deal. When Pilate gives the people the choice, he was probably assuming that they would choose to set free Jesus. Why would they set free Barabbas? Why would they set him free? He is a condemned, convicted killer robber, thief, why would they want him free and not Jesus? Look at Mark 15, verses 6 to 15 on the screen with me. 
It says that the festival Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested, named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them what, as was his custom. Pilate, answer, Pilate, Pilate answered them, look at what he says, do you want for me to release the king of the Jews for you? Some believe, and I can't get all into this, that the crowd was going, wanting Jesus to be freed until there was a change um, in the situation, but I can't get into that tonight. He asked, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Verse 10, for he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest, look at here, stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, imagine being on the wrong side of history, we all would be. Again they shouted, crucify him. Here's Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas is a convicted murderer. Jesus is sinless and has not committed any of the crimes. And what they want to do is crucify him. They shout, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? And just like the world, what the world does when the world's wrong is just shouts all the more. And yet Jesus stayed silent. They shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. Their bloodthirsty cry is for Jesus, who has committed no crime, to be crucified, while you have Barabbas over here, who's a convicted murderer, thief, robber. They want him free. And they want to crucify the Messiah, the sinless Savior. Crucify him. What has he done wrong? Crucify him. What has he done wrong? Crucify him. Can you imagine being at the scene? Verse 15. Here's where Pilate messed up big. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. (laughs) Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. I was at the premiere of Avengers Endgame. I heard the crowd go crazy when we won. (laughs) We, I said like I'm an Avenger. (laughs) Like I was out there. (laughs) I remember hearing the crowd cheer. It was incredible. Everybody was clapping and cheering. You know what was amazing about those claps and cheers? After a few moments it ended and everybody got up and left. Go ahead and live for the applause of the world. At some point it will end and everybody will move on to what's next. No matter how good you and I are. He wants to satisfy the crowd so he hands over the sinless Savior and frees Barabbas. Now this is incredible. Lock in with me. Barabbas and Jesus could not be polar opposites. Barabbas has been judged and condemned for his crime. He deserves death. He can do nothing to set himself free from his sentence. Jesus, though, is completely innocent, did not deserve death. And yet on that day, Jesus took Barabbas' place. Now imagine this. Here's where the Bible comes to life. It comes to life when you realize that you and I, are Barabbas. Barabbas was a prisoner, sentenced to death, zero chance of being set free. He probably was pondering his death. He had probably seen other crucifixions and was thinking about how they were going to drive the nails in his hands, how he was going to struggle to breathe and have to pull himself up on the cross just to breathe, ripping his shoulder muscles apart. He was probably thinking, I know it's heavy, it's reality, it's the Bible. He was probably thinking about his impending doom. He was probably pondering it. Imagine the torment of waiting to be crucified. Can you imagine? I can't. I have no idea. 
you imagine waiting to be crucified? He's waiting to be crucified, and then moments later, a Roman soldier would have entered his jail cell and unlocked the door. Keys jingling and all. Barbas would have struggled to his feet, and they would have taken the chains off of him. Imagine this moment. Barbas now walking outside, walks out limping, struggling, whatever he had going on. He walks out, and he hears the crowd chanting his name. Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. As he walks out, realizing he's a free man. And in that day, as he now is free and standing amongst the crowd with the chains off out of his jail cell, he turns around. And he looks, and what he would have seen in that moment is that a bruised, bloody, and beaten man named Jesus Christ just took his place. Now he is walking free, but Jesus is on a crucifixion. You and I are Barabbas because in the same way, we were doomed. Barabbas is the only one that can say Jesus physically and historically took his place on the cross, but Jesus took every single one of our places on the cross. Maybe you haven't murdered, but you lied. I've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've manipulated. We've done sin. We've committed sin. We've broken the laws of God because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't have to teach a child to misbehave. They'll learn that on their own. Sin in the same way Stephen has us plagued, and we were in our jail cell, bound up on the way to a crucifixion, and it's because of a bloody, beaten, bruised Messiah named Jesus Christ that he came down, freed your chains, opened your jail cell, and allowed you to walk out. And the crazy thing is, the world isn't even shouting his name for it. They'll shout yours. Barabbas, Barabbas, a convicted murderer. Oh, the world will shout your name. Daniel, Daniel. He can preach. He can do all these things. I ain't done nothing. <laughs> Jesus died for the sins of the world, and they don't even realize that they're not even chanting Jesus' name. And you know what? You want to know sin's real? Look at our world. It's fallen, and we're not even chanting the name of the one who restored us. We're chanting the world's name. We're chanting our own name. Took your place. Took my place. They laid out his hand. They drove nails in both of them. Put his feet together. Drove to nail in. Can you imagine being there hearing those nails? Being driven into Jesus' sinless hands for your sin and my sin? He was crucified at 9 a.m. And he lifted up his spirit at 3 p.m. Every sin you've ever committed was nailed with him on that cross. Every thought, every word, every action was nailed on that cross. <laughs> also, that we can be a friend to Jesus. When you repent of your sins and believe in him, confess him as not just the Lord of the universe, but your Lord, you now are saying, hey, I accept Jesus' substitute for me. I accept Jesus' sacrifice for me. That's what repentance is. I am a sinner. I am done with the world. I'm done with my way. I'm turning. I'm doing a 180. I'm turning from living my way. I'm turning to face and walk towards Jesus Christ 
He took my place. So because of that, he's also going to take my place in this life. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever repented of your sins and believed in Jesus? I did it at a public park at 21 years old, alone, freezing cold, day after Christmas, midnight. <laughs> Look like a weirdo laying face down on the ground. Have you ever done that? If not, would you do it tonight? And for those of you who are believers, I just want to ask you one question. Have you forgotten? Or do you remember what real love is built on? A cross, a crucifixion, and a resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the grave so that we get to rise too.